Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Robin Wall Kimmer. She's a mother, scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Uh, she is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants, and Gathering Moss, a Natural and Cultural History of Mosses. Uh, she lives in Syracuse, New York, where she's a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology, and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. And uh, she's going to be giving uh, several presentations. Uh, one is at 1.30 this afternoon, a reading, which is free and open to the public, Utah State University Library, Room 101. Um, her books go on sale at the University Bookstore at 1.15, so get your book and go over to the event. And then after the event, uh, at about 2.20, uh, there's a book signing. Then there's a lecture for the Ecology Center. That's at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Um, Life Science Building 133 on the OSU campus. That also is free and open to the public. And I uh, should say that uh, the at least the reading at uh, 130 is uh, part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, made possible support by Utah State University and Utah Humanities. Robin Wall-Kimmer, pleasure to welcome you in. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you have a very interesting background. I want to start with that, uh, obviously. Uh, you are a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, um, so indigenous background, but I understand not not raised in that tradition. Well, I guess that depends on what you mean by not raised in that tradition. By dint of history and the fact that my grandfather was one of those children who was taken from the reservation to boarding school back east, our family um, came back east, and so I was raised in a in a family that embraced. Potawatomi values, and uh, there are many things that later in life I had, well, why do we do that? I always thought it was just our family. Then when we, you know, really became connected more broadly to Potawatomi people, I thought, oh, <laughs> we all do that. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was I was raised with what I would understand as, as Potawatomi values and connection to the land, but it was only later in life, simultaneously with the revitalization of Potawatomi culture, Culture that invited um, tribal members back into the fold. Mm. Uh, so tell me about the Potawatomi Nation. Where were they located? The Potawatomi are historically uh, people of the southern Great Lakes. So if you think about from about South Bend, Indiana, all along the southern shores of the Great Lakes, through Chicago up to Green Bay, those are our traditional territories. But uh, historically, because of removal and land taking, our people are now stretched from Ontario uh, all the way to Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York. Okay. Um, really in the heart of what I think of as Sugar Maple Nation. Um, but I also live on the ancestral territories of the Haudenosaunee people, particularly the uh, Onondaga Nation. Uh, so I am... Uh, Blessed to be their neighbors, and and uh, uh, but but the Maple Nation, that land of the lush hardwood forests, is Great Lakes territory. Mm -hmm. So ecologically, it is the home of my culture. Yeah, uh, and ecology and culture very very much 
bound up together, right? In the Absolutely. In, in the indigenous Potawatomi tradition. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's our our identity as people, as is true for so many indigenous peoples, is is inseparable, really, mm. from the land and from our plant and animal teachers. Even our uh, Potawatomi language, we are told, was taught to us by the land. It's so many sounds of things like waves crashing on rocks and wind in the trees. Yeah, I, I w- could I hear some. Of the language? Sure. Say something for me? Sure. An example of, of that automatopoeia in the language is, is like the words mudweaushka, which literally mean the waves coming on the shore. Mm. Um, in our language, I would say, mm. I've told you that I'm a Anishinaabe Potawatomi woman, um, that my name is Light Shining Through Sky Woman, and I'm a member of the Bear Clan and also of the Eagles. But in the beauty of that language, you almost hear wind and water. Yeah, certainly, it's certainly true. Yeah, that's interesting that the the land shaped the language. Apparently. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, interesting. You've you just uh, spoken the language uh, beautifully. I assume. I don't know, <laughs> but it sounds beautiful, right? Uh, didn't you didn't grow up speaking? No, this language? no, our language is an endangered species, again, by virtue of the boarding schools where our grandparents were not allowed to speak the language. It became dangerous to teach it and pass it on to children. So when I began learning the language, there were only nine fluent speakers left. Nine? Nine fluent speakers Wow, left. what about yeah. today? Yeah, today, because of language immersion programs, because of, of great impetus to save our language and revitalize it, there are, there are kids in Head Start programs who, who speak our language. Uh, so it is being regenerated. We have immersion camps, wild rice camps, for example, that are held completely in the language. So um, the, the language is coming back. Yeah, uh, and you really need children to be speaking the language, right? That for it to really be vital. You do. Yeah. And to you connect the language to life ways. There is there's danger in the in the language becoming only a ceremonial language. Mm-hmm. And in and in fact it, it it shapes and teaches us as we go. So it needs to be part of everyday life. Yeah. Uh, and are you making you, you know, collectively making progress with that? And collectively, our people are making progress with it. My own progress is very slow. Um, when I when I work diligently at it, I make a lot of progress. Uh, and for me, one of the issues is because I live far from our people, I don't have anyone to converse with mm-hmm. on a daily basis. So more of my language practice has actually been in speaking to the land, mm. in learning the plant names and the water names. Yeah. And, and that way I, I, I always have somebody to talk to. I want to get into that. Um, you're very eloquent about that. Um, I, I read somewhere, I hope I'm not making this up, that <laughs> you, you connect in with uh, folks in Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, video. Sure, yeah. The Citizen Potawatomi Nation is located in Shawnee, Oklahoma, although more than half of our people do not live in in Oklahoma. That, of course, is not really our homeland. That is where we were were removed to. Mm. Um, But it is, uh, that is the seat of our tribal government and much cultural revitalization. So, yeah, we have a wonderful language program and there are video and online classes that that we can drop into. Uh, So that's where the the nation is located. This, of course, Indian territory, the government removed many Indian nations to Oklahoma, right? Yes. 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 Um, 
Let's get into talking a bit about uh, connection with the land. I have seen you say that um, you wished you had had access to indigenous elders to teach you about the land. Yeah. Um, but but you didn't have access to them. Yes. Um, again, by virtue of, of removal and, and assimilative practices, I did not, or at least at the time I thought I did not. I used to ask my dad about various practices and words and, and understandings, and he always had to say, I'm sorry, that was taken from us. I, I don't know. Mm. Um, but he did tell me and always made clear that the land was the one who had always taught our people. Our language came from the land. The plants and animals are understood as, as our teachers. And as a kid, I had a very natural affinity for always being in the woods and, and the fields. And there is a very deep and rich way in which the land was my teacher from from the very beginning. Um, but also story is such an important teacher. And my father and my extended Potawatomi family always conveyed to us stories of, of our families and, and of our history. So while I did not grow up on the reservation, I did grow up in this this nest of knowing who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you you had the lack of the elders, but you feel like the forest taught you. Absolutely. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, you know, unlike in in much of Western society, which views trees and birds and flowers as sort of things, they're just ecosystem entities, in indigenous ways of knowing, we recognize them as people who were here a long time before we are and really know how to live in the world in a way that, that human people who we sometimes call the younger brothers of creation, we're trying to still figure out how to live here. And, um, and so being taught by strawberries and, and white pines about how to live well in place is part of our cultural heritage, and it was also part of my personal upbringing. Yeah. We'll get into that, so some of those themes uh, continuing as, as we speak. Uh, I wanted to t- talk about how you got into science, and it, it would seem like that's a very different way of seeing the world, seeing nature, than indigenous ways, but if, uh, I think you're going to tell me that the, there aren't as many differences, or... But but tell me how you You're got. Right. Yeah. That is what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, tell me how you got interested in science. Well, you know, it really was a matter of of being in love with the natural world and growing up with parents who were both scientifically inclined. My mom was the person who everybody in the neighborhood would bring a snake or a grasshopper to, and she would figure out how to look it up in the field guide. So I grew up with with science oriented parents. I also grew up with a great love of language, and when I was going to decide, you know, to go off to college, I had to decide whether I wanted to be a poet or a botanist. And the plants had gotten hold of me early on, so Mm. there was really no choice there. Um, But really, I walked into the scientific worldview when I went to the university, because I did understand plants as my relatives, as my teachers, um, as real beings. And when I first went to the university, of course, they were teaching very mechanistic botany, strictly objective botany. And I had a hard time with that. Um, Fortunately, my love for plants carried me through having to memorize the concentrations of, of essential mineral elements and chase molecules through through photosynthesis. Um, so that was where I first began having to try to reconcile an indigenous worldview with a scientific worldview. 
and um, that has been a lifelong journey. Uh, part of part of the story for me is that I was pretty quickly told on pretty much my first day at the university that my way of thinking about plants did not belong in science. Mm. And and uh, I, I was 17 years old. I, I was the only native student in the university. I had very little uh, vocabulary of resistance to mm. that. And so I learned Western science and I learned it well, you know, through throughout my graduate degrees, but all the time knowing that there was something that I was missing. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that while indigenous knowledge and Western science, they have some profound differences between them, but the place that they unite is in learning from the land. Mm-hmm. Both of them are about the land as 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 teacher um and so eventually i came to find a a a common ground a safe place between them but the worldviews are very different so what do you think it was in you that you know 17 years old you're the only indigenous student there Uh, i guess you you have to adjust at least on the outside okay i'm just going to learn the science from the western perspective Mm -hmm. something in you persisted in in keeping wanting to to keep the strand of indigenous absolutely knowledge going you know and i think it goes back to my childhood asking my dad why he couldn't tell me plant names in our language why he couldn't tell me about the medicinal uses the things i desperately wanted to know when he told me that there were schools that made us as Native peoples, unlearn those things. And as a young kid, I had that notion that if there, was a, uh, if there were schools that could teach you to forget what your people had always known, there must be schools where you could learn them again. And, and that uh, became really a motive force mm-hmm. for me. That kept me going because I knew what, what was possible but was not present in the university. That's interesting. That, that is... That is part of the violence that was done in removal, right? Absolutely. E- erasure yes. of, of knowledge and culture. Yes. Not only erasure of the knowledge and the culture, but the um, marginalization and diminishment of it so that one would say, well, you don't bother learning those things. Those, Even if you had the opportunity, it's, it's superstitious, it's useless, it's old-fashioned. And um, so, yes, it was absolutely a kind of violence. So you said if there were those schools that erased, then there must be schools. Are, are you, were you talking about, I'm, I'm going to found one of those schools, or I'm going to f- find? I wanted to find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, there weren't very many places where that could happen. Um, and I'm so proud to say that it's really right down the hall from the place where I was told my way of thinking did not belong in the university. We now have today the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, mm-hmm. whose very mission is to create relationship between indigenous ways of knowing and Western science. I was going to ask you, I assume that things are better now than they were, in part because of places like Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, still, I guess, still room for improvement? Where, where would you like to see things go from here. I feel so privileged to be alive at a time when indigenous knowledge is 
um, increasingly being valued and sought, particularly in these urgent times of climate chaos and, and loss of species diversity and the social pathologies that come from our disconnection from land. I think um, Western science and Western society has proceeded to a place where they say, you know, there's something missing here, and that something missing is what our ancestors had held so preciously as as indigenous science and indigenous philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, this this seed is that had been protected by our cultures for so long is now being watered again and 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 growing and flourishing. Again, I come from a time when I was the only native student in the entire university, and today I have a cohort of seven native graduate students. Mm-hmm. So, you bet it's getting better and <laughs> and it's so encouraging, really exhilarating to work with young people who are culturally competent and are weaving together science and indigenous ways of knowing. And assume scientifically competent as well and you Oh, absolutely. You weave oh. those things together. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It for us it is never a um science or indigenous knowledge. It's science and indigenous knowledge because um, traditional ecological knowledge very explicitly um, slips in to the weak places of of Western scientific knowledge. And, you know, I keep saying scientific knowledge. Um, It's important to say that traditional ecological knowledge is science. Our people have been scientists from the beginning. How else could we adapt to um, the the places that we live and and make a sustainable way in the world? Our people were botanists. Our people were were healers, astronomers, astronomers, mathematicians, agronomists. So, but it was done in a different context. It was done in a context that not only. Like in Western science, we use the scientific method and scientific tools very adeptly for certain kinds of questions, which tend to be, in a way, true-false questions. What is the truth about the world? But, but very explicitly, we don't bring in our responsibility to the world. It's knowledge for knowledge's sake. Whereas in Western, or in, excuse me, in indigenous science, that's just not possible. You don't uncouple knowledge from responsibility. So Western science, I think, as the master of the true-false question, and indigenous science as the master of the right-wrong question. Mm-hmm. What do we do with the knowledge that we have? Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to follow that, uh, that uh, thread. Um, of uh, you know which which brings us to the the current situation right climate change and yes. and all of that before we go to break i want to um uh, i want to ask you again about your father we we've we've weaved him in as a character in this story so to speak um he told you i'm i'm sorry i don't have that knowledge that was you know kind of removed from me et cetera et cetera what did he end up were you able to go back and restore that was he able to restore that those those ways in that culture yes it was again our our people were very fragmented that knowledge was as we say sleeping and i thought when i was growing up i thought it was just sleeping in my family but that's not true it was sleeping across our nation because of all of these forces but about 20 years ago all of the Potawatomi peoples from Ontario to Oklahoma began coming together as a nation to undo, to run that historical film backwards and come back together. And we teach each other every summer. Um, and so we learn language, we learn cultural practices, each bringing the fragments that they have, 
have held on to, to share. And yes, my father can today pray in his language. Mm. So this is, has been a healing, uh, not only for, for me, but for my family and for my extended family and for my nation. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back and, uh, and talk more, obviously, with uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, she's a mother, scientist, decorated professor, enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's author of a couple of books, Writing Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants, and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses. And uh, she is SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology, founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. You have a chance to um, come and hear Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's giving a reading uh, at 1.30 this afternoon in USU uh, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. And that is free and open to the public, 1.30 p.m. It's part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. Um, books go on sale. Her books go on sale one fifteen p.m. at the bookstore. You can get a book and then head over to the reading. And then after the reading, there's a book signing. Then there's a lecture this afternoon at 4 o'clock for the Ecology Center, and that's in uh, Life Science Building 133. That also free and open to the public. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Uh, she is SUNY Distinguished uh, Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology, and she's the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. She's giving uh, some presentations on the Utah State University campus uh, today, 1.30 p.m. Merrill Kassir Library, Room 101 on the USU campus uh, is a reading. And uh, book signing will follow. Admission is free and open to the public, and uh, that's part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. There's a lecture for the Ecology Center on the OSU campus, uh, Life Science Building 133, 4 p.m. That also is free and open uh, to the public. You're welcome to join this conversation. A couple of ways you can do that. You can call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can uh, email us, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, so I want to want to read you a quote. Let me bring this up. And I, uh, I'll give full credit to, um, to Krista Tippett and On Being. I'm, I'm at their website. You did a wonderful interview with, with Krista Tippett. Um, so, uh, quoting from them, um, let's see. This is how Robin Wall Kimmer writes about moss, which she studies as a botanist and a bryologist. Is that how you that's describe right. that? Mm-hmm. Uh, that? That's a study of moss, is it? It is. Um, as a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, she joins science's ability to polish the art of seeing with her personal civilizational lineage of listening to plant life, heeding the languages of the natural world. This gives her a grammar not of feminine and masculine, but animate and inanimate. Um, so I want to ask you about that and, and maybe compare and contrast the, the way of uh, seeing through science, the way of listening through indigenous mm-hmm. yeah. um, knowledge. Sure. Well, Western science really does, as I like to say, polish the art of seeing because it helps you pay deep attention and to construct meanings around what it is that you see, to look for patterns and and ask questions about, well, why is the world the way that it is? What are those little mosses doing? What are those sunflowers doing? And, you know, we can't, um, in Western science, ask them, so we do experiments. And, and experiments are, in a way, a kind of interview. Um, you set up the conditions so that those plants can 
answer the questions. And um, I think that that's also part of, of indigenous science as well. Of course it is, paying deep empirical attention to what the plants are, are, are telling us, but also giving agency to those plants to really recognize that, that they are our teachers and that they've got um, something to share. And so we, we can ask of them and listen for a response, um, not only about um, what nature is like, but what our relationships are like with with mosses, with sunflowers, with rivers and, and mountains. And, and in indigenous ways of knowing, we use the tools not just of intellect and measurement, but also, and we do use measurement and intellect, but we also um, enable a kind of uh, emotional connection in relationship to living world and and uh, and the presence of spiritual knowledge uh, that we say imbues all living beings so uh, tell me a little bit more about that um, I was watching a TED talk you gave and people could look this up Ted TEDx Sitka that's right right mm-hmm. um, by the way you said you you would like to photosynthesize <laughs> which is delightful <laughs> You yourself would like to photosynthesize. Oh, it is my dearest <laughs> wish. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and you, you said yes. that as a way of, of telling us that uh, plants are brilliant, right? Oh, they're brilliant. Yes. Take, take sunlight and turn it into to life, food, right? Yeah, to, yeah. Yes. To take sunlight, air, and water and turn it into food. Turn it into food that you then pretty much give away for free. Mm, plants are our teachers of generosity. You know, they take air and light and water and turn it into medicine and give it away for free. This is why we revere plants, for their creativity, for their generosity, and for kind of modeling how it is that we might be in the world. But the other thing that the plants model is that they don't take without giving back, right? You can't, the soil would be depleted if plants didn't give back to the soil. Um, and so they are our teachers in that regard as well, that, that we as human people just can't keep taking. Um, we have to take because we, because we can't photosynthesize, we have to take from the living world. But when you view the living world as your relatives, as, as, as beings, you just don't take willy-nilly. You have to follow these protocols of the honorable harvest for how you take. So that's what I mean by it's imbued with with an ethical, spiritual responsibility, as well as with the empirical. In this talk, you said uh, it's our moral imagination that will shape the world. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, reframing our, our thinking. Do, do you, I assume you believe that. You, you said it. I do. And and in these times of tremendous urgency in which we live, where biodiversity and a livable planet literally hang in the balance, you know, um, we have to think about the ways in which our actions in the world can propel thriving. Um, and, and plants, again, can be our, our, our guide for that. You talked about the prophecy of the seventh fire. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, you know, within many indigenous ways of knowing, we don't think about time as a line. We think about time as a circle. And so if time it moves in a circle, prophecy and history 
meet, right? They become the same thing. And among our people, there is a prophecy that began when we lived on the east coast of of Turtle Island, back with our Wabanaki relatives, long before colonists came here. Um, We are told that a teacher arose among our people who said we have to move to the west, big changes. We're coming to Turtle Island and not to have all our eggs in one basket. So our people moved to the Great Lakes. And throughout those fires of the seventh pro- of the seventh fire prophecies, they refer to the historical happenings of our people. There are prophecies that tell there's going to come a time when you're separated from your land and you have to walk away from your homelands. And we know that that happened. We, there's prophecies that say that that black-robed people would come among us and try to break the hoop of our spiritual traditions. We know that that happened. That there would come a time when our language was lost to us. There would come a time when the elders um, would be asked for knowledge and they could not give it. All of this has come to pass just as the prophecies had said it would. But the prophecies also say that there will come a time when you can't dip your cup into a river and drink. Unthinkable at that time. And we know we live in that time. That there will become a time when the air is too thick to breathe and when our plant and animal relatives will turn their faces away from us. That's the moment we live in. Mm. The seventh fire prophecy takes us to that bleak place, that bleak place where we are right now and says that all the world's people, both the newcomers and the native peoples, will stand at a fork in the road and that fork has two paths diverging from it and one of them is is the barefoot path. It's green and soft and dewy and we know we want to walk there and the other pathway is burnt to a crisp and it would hurt your feet. It would cut you to walk there. We know where we want to go. But the prophecy of the the teaching of the seventh fire, people tell us that we have to walk backwards. We have to walk backwards along the trail where our ancestors left teachings for us. Our stories, our teachings from the plants and animals, the plants and animals themselves, our worldview, all of our teachings about how we might live in a green and barefoot world lie along that path and that it is for all of us to do that together and so it is an invitation to all the world's people to pick up um, our sacred relationship with the living world and only when we've done that can we walk down that green path part of those teachings and just common sense right that no one of us can pick all of that up but each of us can pick something up and carry it to safety. And when we think about uh, the climate catastrophe as a as a bottleneck, um, the only things that will come through that bottleneck are what we pick up and carry. And so we have to ask ourselves in this time of the of the seventh fire, um, what do you love too much to lose? And name it, pick it up, and carry it to the future. What uh, what is that for you? Love it too much to lose. I have to have a really big backpack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I love too much to lose is the v- vibrancy of the plant world. Um, so I'm a seed saver. That is part of my way of, of carrying into the future. I grow um, a lot of heritage varieties um, from our people. I routinely carry plants from places that they are thriving to places where they have been lost. Um, so I, I think I really sort of heed those, those teachings of the 
um, the power of the seed and, and try to carry seeds. I also feel as if my work is also in storytelling. To be able to, because I have been gifted with stories from my culture, because I'm a listener, um, I, I try to carry those stories forward as well because those stories help us remember what it is to live in a just and creative relationship with the living world. And, you know, all the, the corporate um, industrial world tries to make us forget those stories. The stories we are told is we need to consume more, right? And we need to have more and that humans are exceptional and different and better than all other members of creation. That, I think, is the story that has gotten us to the climate precipice. And so carrying forward a a much, much older story that says, one of humility, that we are the younger brothers of creation whose job it is to care for all of our relatives. That's the story that needs to come through the bottleneck. Hmm. If you just joined us, uh, we're talking with Robin Wall Kimmer, and uh, she is on the OSU campus for a couple of events. She's author of a couple of uh, books, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants, and Gathering Moss, a Natural and Cultural History of Mosses. Uh, she is founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Uh, you can uh, come and hear her read at 1.30 this afternoon, um, Merrill Kazir Library 101 on the OSU campus. And then at 4 o'clock this afternoon, she's giving a lecture for the Ecology Center. That's in the Life Science Building 133. Um, I want to have you talk to me a little bit about uh, you, you talk about listening to plants. Um, walk through the forest, I guess, or in your TED talk, you talked about berries, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, d- tell me about listening to plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the listening to plants that I'm talking about is, is a kind of a whole body experience, that time in which when I go into the woods, oh, how did you describe it? It's almost like being this great big antenna. Um, and and taking in all the signals that are around you. When I listen to plants, I'm not talking about hearing a voice in my head that says, like a cartoon voice that says, I'm a strawberry, come pick me. It's not like that. Um, it's a kind of knowing. It, it, it is, and we experience this with, with each other. We know when wisdom is present around us, right? Um, and so it's, it's a, a deep kind of paying attention. And all I can experience or express it as is, is that when you go into this state of deep listening to plants, emptying your mind of everything else to make space for, for them, you come away knowing things that you didn't know before. Um, so that's, that's how I think about listening, how I experience listening to plants. And these, these ancient teachings that our ancestors gave us about listening to the natural world are things that in the noisy Western society seem so strange and far-fetched. But if you were raised to exercise that muscle of living, of listening to the living world, you came to know what the chickadees were saying. You came to know what it meant when the moss behaved in a particular way or the cattails behaved in a particular way. And, and it's not supernatural. It's absolutely natural. But it's a muscle that in Western society we no longer flex, and so it has atrophied. Um, It can be learned. It can be learned. The world is alive and and animate and has a lot to teach us if we would pay attention. 
what uh, what tips would you give give us? You know, we just go out into our garden, or you know, to the park, or you know, we have access uh, here. We we have the blessing, of, you know, driving fifteen minutes, we'll be in the forest. What what would you tell us about flexing that, exercising that muscle? Mm, yeah, what a great question. Um, and for me, the answer is this is just common sense. We know this. If we want to learn something, we have to be in the presence of the teacher. <laughs> we have to go where the teacher is, or have the teacher come to us. And so, absolutely, it is it is it is time. In the living world, time in the living world and an orientation to the beingness of that world. If we just think those trees are board feet timber, they don't have anything to say to us, we say to ourselves. But if we say these are 400 year old beings who know how to convert light into food, who know how to draw water up from the ground, you know, 100 feet in the air, it's like, oh, with that kind of orientation to their wisdom and their intelligence, then you start, that opens the door to learning things. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take a break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about um, the honorable harvest. Mm. These are principles yes. which can help with healing. Um, so we'll talk about that, and uh, I also want to talk about moss. This oh, is an, that's... <laughs> which I'm, I'm assuming you'd want to talk to me about. Um, <laughs> this is... I guess for the average person, this would be an unlikely field of study. Right? But, it certainly but, is. But moss <laughs> turns out to be fascinating. Let's talk about that as well. We're, we're talking with Robin Wall Kimmer. Uh, she is a, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, author of a couple of books I mentioned just uh, recently here. She's SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology and founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. And uh, she's giving uh, a couple of presentations. One is a reading. That's this afternoon at 1.30 in Merrill Kazir Library, room 101 on the USU campus. That's free and open to the public, part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, sponsored by Utah State University and Utah Humanities. Uh, books go on sale at the USU Bookstore at 1.15, ahead of that reading. And then after the reading, there's a book signing. And uh, then there's a lecture. Robin Wall Kimmer is giving a lecture for the Ecology Center. That's at 4 o'clock this afternoon in Life Science Building 133 on the OSU campus. That is free and open to the public. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or uh, upraxcess at gmail.com is the email, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this break. We've reached our last uh, segment with Robin Wall Kimmer, and uh, she is uh, founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Uh, she is an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and uh, talks about uh, science, Western science, but also uh, indigenous knowledge, indigenous wisdom. Uh, she's giving a couple of events, a reading as part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, one thirty this afternoon uh, in Merrill Kazir Library, room 101 on the OSU campus, and that is free and open to the public. Uh, book signing follows. And then there's a lecture for the Ecology Center at 4 o'clock this afternoon, Life Science Building 133. That's also free and open to the public. Uh, a couple of books. Uh, uh, she's author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants, and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of, of Mosses. Uh, so, Robin Wall Kimmer, I want to talk uh, to you about this idea of uh, of um, the honorable harvest. Uh, so, uh, in this TED talk, you talked first about sustainability. 
and what sometimes we have different ideas of what sustainability is. Mm-hmm. What, what's your definition of sustainability? Well, it depends on which lens I'm looking at the world through. <laughs> you know, that the Western notion of, of sustainability, of trying to create a society that enables us to go into the future without depleting the, the living world is probably the most common understanding of, of that. Um, how, how can we continue to meet our needs without depleting the world? Um, but the indigenous viewpoint on sustainability, and that word isn't really used an awful lot, looks at that and says, you know, that Western definition of sustainability really is um, uh, oriented to how can we keep on taking? And um, if you reframe that through the indigenous lens of our responsibility as people, it is not to keep taking, but we should be asking, what should we be giving? Um, And that reframes sustainability, not what can we take, but what can we give? And and this notion of the honorable harvest is, 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 is to try to make a balance between taking and giving so that we can go forward. So just tell me about the honorable harvest. What are, what are some of the principles here? Well, this is kind of an unwritten protocol that is enacted every time people take from the living world. And let me set it up this way that, you know, if you think about the living world as just stuff, as just property, doesn't almost doesn't matter how you take it because you don't have a moral responsibility to it. But if you think about the living world as your relatives, as your family, and you're about to eat them, um, so that demands a kind of an ethical response as well as a pragmatic response. And so the, the honorable harvest is the set of protocols that are guided by that knowing that that if we are going to take because we can't photosynthesize we have to take with honor and with ethics so parts of it are like if you're going to go pick roots or you're going to pick berries or you're going to cut firewood or you're going to go hunting you use these same principles of of saying that you know you never take the first one um, that's a conservation ethic right there that because if you don't take the first one you will never take the last one um, that you should ask permission before you take because after all it's someone's life you're asking for them to share from their own bodies so that your body can live and if you ask permission you have to listen for the answer and um, in many cases that answer is yes this is my role in the world um, um, I will give to you but sometimes the answer is no and if the answer is no you go home um, but if you do take we're told to never take more than half um, that just as the earth shared with us whatever we take we are to share with others it's not for us to just hoard and keep to ourselves that when we take we um, take in such a way that does as little damage as possible that we always give gratitude back for everything that we have taken and we not only give gratitude we are at this point really enacting our responsibility to life by giving something back. If we have taken, we have to give back. And sometimes that's a spiritual gift, but it is also a practical gift. If you're going to be digging a root, you break those roots up and take little pieces of them and plant them here and there. You might scatter the seeds. You might weed around those berries that you're taking from. You have to give your human gift in return for what the plants have given you. And in that whole protocol, which is both practical and spiritual at the same time, um, we say that that's how the world would continue if, if we keep giving back. And it is an ethical, spiritual protocol, but as a 
practicing plant ecologist, it is also plant science. That it is the rules of ecology that you know the the feedback loops that that keep the world in balance require a balance between taking and giving. Hmm. We scale this up. You talked about this. Um, if if you see it through a lens of the Earth gives gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, then some things would not be appropriate to take, you know, yes. fracking, coal extraction, in your view, what what would Absolutely. be what, what what would be appropriate to well, to receive? It that that's kind of an underlying principle of the honorable harvest is to take only that which is given to you, um, and and I cannot think that that open pit coal mining is given to us get fracked gas that pollutes the water and the air is not given to us especially when we have energy sources that are given to us the sun shines every day is given to us the wind blows every day the tides roll every day these are sources of energy that are given to us and we have the ingenuity we have the technology to use those and to create a a um, you know they're carbon free right um, as well and so the teachings of the honorable harvest might seem like these antiquated berry picking traditions but i think they're really good energy policy as well we just have about uh, four four or five minutes left i do want to talk about moss so let's make a transition to that you you have said that uh, moss is the i think i've got this right the coral reef Yes, of, of I guess on land. Uh, they're the coral reefs of the forest. <laughs> of you the bet. Forest, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in not only are mosses themselves, there are seventeen thousand different kinds of bryophytes. That's a lot of biodiversity. But inside every little handful of moss is a whole little world of of of, of great biodiversity of of invertebrates, for example. So the the moss is like a little forest that harbors its own ecological community. And while mosses are tiny, they have outsized, really large ecological impact. Mosses build soil, they purify water, they harbor biodiversity, and they're so darn beautiful. Um, They regulate the temperature, they can regulate climate. Um, And so they are, for me, a teacher of do not overlook the small. Um, they they are really beautiful, and they offer us not only these ecological roles, but uh, lessons about how we might live too. Hmm. And is, I guess a furtherance of your lesson that if you if you observe more more closely, you'll you'll see a whole world, right? Yeah. Because mosses are interacting with rocks. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You might just walk on past the moss and the rock, and and miss this this drama that's going on. Oh, it's true. You know, we talk about humans giving their gifts. One of the gifts that we have is attention. And when you pay attention, that is the gateway to wonder. And and wonder is, is how we fall in love with the world. And so paying attention to mosses and sidewalk cracks um, is, is honestly a way to change your whole relationship with the living world, um, to understand that every little part is, is important um, and that when we fall in love with the world, that's when we act in right relation. When I think of the crises that we face right now, it is essentially engendered by the fact that we haven't loved the world enough. And and whether they're beings large or small that help us to, to remember how to love the world, that's the medicine we need. Hmm. I'm, I'm just curious, by the way, um, the, the Potawatomi were 
relocated, right? Yes. Which is a euphemistic word. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, from the Great Lakes area to to Oklahoma. Um, w- w- was there adaptation of that? I mean, this is a whole different land to, to, go, to in- yes. interact with. What? Imagine the tragedy of that, not only leaving your beloved homeland, but when you get to you know, the pre-Dust Bowl prairies of Oklahoma from the lush uh, landscapes of the, of the Great Lakes, tremendous suffering, um, but also tremendous resilience. Mm. It's important to know that we are still here. Despite that, we are still here. And so, yes, it was indigenous science that allowed us to adapt mm-hmm. to a new homeland, learning from the land learning from the other peoples who are already there. Um, it, it is the essence, in a sense, of what we need in times of climate adaptation for all of us, because our people have lived it. We walked on the trail of death in three months from one climate to another. And so we we learned, we have this experience of, of how do we adapt to climate change. And it is by learning from the land, by caring for the land, and by caring for each other. At the end here, are you are you more hopeful, more worried about the overall uh, picture of, of climate change? Of course, I'm worried. How could we not be? Um, how could we not be? Um, we we live in in urgent times where our responsibilities are, of course, both to to arrest climate change as best we can, and also to turn our creative energies toward planning for the future, toward toward adaptation. But the question is, am I hopeful? I am hopeful because of the creativity of of life, because of the wisdom of plants. Plants know how to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. Plants know how to build soil. Plants know how to um, uh, engender biodiversity. And so I think that one of the most important things that we can do as people is to is is to green the world again. Um, uh, schoolyards, backyards, universities, federal government, from the individual to the systemic, we have to be planting. We have to re-green the world. We'll leave it there. Uh, Robin Wall Kimmer is a founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, and uh, she's author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and uh, the Teaching of Plants, and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses. Uh, she is on the USU campus to give a couple of presentations. She'll be giving a reading uh, at one thirty this afternoon as part of the Utah Humanities Book uh, Festival, sponsored by Utah Humanities and Utah State University. That is Merrill Kazir Library Room 101, and it's free and open to the public. Book signing follows, and books go on sale at the USU Bookstore at 115 preceding that. Then there's a lecture for the Ecology Center, 4 o'clock this afternoon, Life Science Building 133. That's also free and open to uh, the public. Robin Wilkemmer, thank you. Thank you. This has been Grant. And uh, th- I, I should say uh, tomorrow, I don't forget to uh, plug tomorrow's show uh, because it's related. Um, Bob Inglis is, is a former uh, Republican congressman from uh, South Carolina. When he came out in favor of a carbon tax, uh, he lost three to one in the primary. <laughs> his his primary voters did not uh, did not forgive him for that. Uh, but he is uh, now on a on a nationwide tour. He goes around uh, trying to convince Republicans and conservatives that human-caused climate change is real and that we need to uh, enact uh, measures like uh, carbon tax. Bob Inglis is my guest uh, for the hour tomorrow. Hope you join me then. Thanks for listening today.